When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Rains, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Brent Collier. Tickets available at StrangeRealitiesConference.com. It's going to be amazing. So welcome back, everybody, to Conspiranormal. We are uh, continuing to go through... The guests that um, are going to be presenters that are going to be at the Strange Realities Conference coming up in a little less than six weeks uh, from the time that we're recording. Um, Count down. Yeah. And one of those is Mr. Steve Stockton. It works out very nice because he has a new book out. And Steve, you're getting about as prolific as Nick Redfern. I think you're going to catch up with him. <laughs> uh, I'd love to be as prolific as Nick Redfern, but uh, I've been uh, doing one every couple of months or so. So if I can keep that up for a while, I'll I'll, I'll get close. Yeah, yeah. These are kind of uh, short and sweet. I really, uh, I really enjoy them. And anytime that just like you know, it's 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 kind of a, a relaxing thing to just sit down and read read your books. So. It reminds me of the books I used to read of all these like weird stuff back in the day, you know, like the Jerome Clark books and and all that kind of Frank uh, Edwards. Frank Edwards stuff. was my hero growing up. I found uh, yeah, Stranger Than Science or, or one of those books that just that got me really hooked on him. And it's, yeah, it's that kind of style. Um, if you've ever seen the movie The Big Chill, Jeff Goldblum's character is a writer for People magazine. And he says in the film that his articles uh, are timed to the length that it takes the average person to take the average dump. That's kind of the way the, the stories are <laughs> in my books. Just enough time, you know, you get in, get a story, and get your business done, and then get on out. Or you can sit and read the whole thing cover to cover. Right. Yeah, I kind of miss those days. You know, now that we got cell phones, it's kind of, you don't find the stack of books on the toilet anymore. Yeah. Yeah unfortunately right like the book of lists or something like that yeah uh, I, was, uh, <laughs> I remember Uncle having some real eureka moments reader or something like that i used to see that one in people's bathrooms <laughs> yeah yeah well this one is uh national park mysteries and disappearances and this is part two is volume two uh california 
Yosemite Joshua Tree in Mount Shasta. Mm-hmm. So the question that I think I ask everybody is, Steve, since you know you wrote this, why did you choose those three places for part two? Well, in volume one, I'd covered the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and just had one volume dedicated to it because it is the most visited national park. And uh, Yosemite in California is the second most visited national park. So I thought that was sort of a logical progression. And then uh, Joshua Tree and Mount Shasta are my two favorite places, a lot of high strangeness in California. There's a lot more. I could have you know, done a book on just each one of those probably. But um, like I said, I'm trying to keep it short and sweet and just hit the the high points and the really interesting stuff. And those those three seem to work well together. Yeah, I'm just kind of looking at where Mount Shasta actually is. I was like, that's pretty that's pretty close. A lot close of weird to- stuff up there. I've been up on Mount Shasta, been around Mount Shasta. That whole area, uh, the, the town at the base of it there in Weed, California, probably all the way to Redding. There's just a, a strangeness here. Of course, you've got a lot of New Agers and a lot of uh, cultic-like study groups and things, but it's there's some kind of energy there, maybe a vortex or portal or something. I don't know. Reminds right. me a lot of Sedona, if you've ever been yeah. to Arizona. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a lot about uh, Mount Shasta because there is some interesting um, stuff that happens there. And there's the entry to the underworld, yeah, of course. Yeah. And Saint Germain and all that, but uh, <laughs> but we'll we'll we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so this book just covers, and you kind of cover like I guess really the whole. You cover one part because like uh, Mount Shasta is Northern California, Yosemite's kind of in the middle, and um, Joshua Tree, of course, is like in the, the very south. And um, I, I I didn't actually go to Joshua Tree National Monument or na- National Park now. But I did um, kind of skirt around there because in that same area is also like the Integratron and yep. Giant Rock and all that. I was too. just out there a little over a month ago. Yeah. Did you actually go to the park? Yes. Okay. Went to the park and went to all that. Yeah. And they have contacts in the desert out there, too. It's it's worth checking out. There's just from another one of those places. There's just something about it. Uh, Bernie uh, Ladin, who was... Um, he was a guitarist or a lyricist or something for the Eagles. He said it was everybody's power spot in uh, Southern California at that time. Yeah, and it's such a like iconic place too. Of course, you know, famous because of the U two and the in the Joshua Tree. Yeah, that. Well, actually, though, that's kind of misleading. Where they took that picture is several miles away from. It's not in the national park, but a lot of people go there looking for it. But uh, the tree that was on that album cover, it's still there, but it's it's fallen over. And there's kind of a homemade plaque out there uh, where it stood. And people leave uh, stuff there, um, tributes to Bono and you too. Wasn't it called, isn't it, the, the tree itself, isn't it called Joshua Tree because of the Mormons? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah the, they thought that it looked like the holding his hands up in prayer, the way those, mm-hmm. those normally appear. And they, they gave it to Mormon settlers, gave it that name. Yeah, I, mean, I did get to see them because, uh, I mean, they're all over the place out there. Yeah, they're all over Southern California, the, the Mojave. We'll just start with the, um, the Joshua Tree then. Um, kind of like the history of the area and um, wh- why people kind of like to come out there. Well, a lot of it's just it's the solitude and it's... Um, 
kind of halfway between Los Angeles and uh, Las Vegas. So if you're headed through the desert, it's just kind of a, you know, passing through point, but it's, it's a cool place to stop with it being about halfway like that. So it's a lot of traffic that way. And then in particular during the sixties and seventies with a lot of the, the hippie folk rock type country rock sort of people, for some reason, they really dug Joshua tree. Like I said, everybody's power spot. So you had a lot of people out there that um, uh, one thing is a, a good spot to watch UFOs and uh, also a good mm-hmm. place to uh, take uh, different uh, medicines and watch for UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of accounts of some of the rock stars of that time went out there and taking LSD and uh, watching for UFOs, which probably saw many. Yeah. It seems like the first place to really get out into the wilderness uh, from Los Angeles for a lot of people. Yeah. Don't have that light pollution that you do a lot of other places. And that's, that's pretty stark. I mean, there's not a lot out there. There's a um, little town there of Joshua tree. And then right next to that, there's a place called pioneer town. That's really cool. And uh, again, sort of the hippie folky rock people still live there. Um, Victoria Williams. I, she lived there for years. I don't know if she's still there or not. She had to get out of the desert though because of her multiple sclerosis. But uh, it's just, like I said, it's a cool little town, just a wide spot in the road. But there's a lot of bars there and some good restaurants and things like that. It's not real touristy just because it's in the middle of nowhere. But it's a great place to go and just relax. Um, I talk a lot about the Joshua Tree Inn. And uh, it's kind of famous and infamous. Uh, a lot of the stars of yesteryear used to go out there and stay. Uh, John Barrymore stayed there. John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, a kind of place to to get away from Hollywood and go out in the desert and hang out without having to go, say, to Palm Springs or somewhere like that. For the Patreon episode, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Graham Parsons yeah, and uh, his death out there. Not not a resident, but a visitor, and uh, he's immortalized there. We'll, we'll get into that later if you want to, though. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the, uh, of course, the, these these books. You've got a lot about like the mysterious disappearances that happen in these parks. And in these areas, and uh, one that I chose to talk about for this one uh, is uh, the the Bill Iwasco disappearance um, and Paul Miller. I mean, these are both kind of weird, strange disappearances that happened there. Yeah, uh, Paul was found. I don't know if I included that in the, in the book or not. I may have to update that at some point. But his uh, his body was found. I'd have to go back and look what I wrote about him in here. That's terrible when you get old enough that you can't remember what you wrote. But um, yeah, Bill Owasco, Yeah, he was uh, in his sixties. So it seems to be a lot of older guys that go to hike out there because there's a lot of easy hiking. And if you can stay in the desert heat, it's not that bad either. So, but uh, that's also seems to be the ones that uh, tend to go missing. But uh, Wasco is just one of those where he went on a hike and uh, never came back. Found his car and everything. And um, there's a, a similarity almost in all those disappearances. There'd be some similarities anyway. It just makes you wonder, you know, what exactly is going on out there or. Uh, it tends to be either uh, young, fit men or older, fit men. Um, usually, uh, people like uh, marathoners and uh, cyclers and things like that. Uh, either uh, highly educated people 
or people on the, the lower end of the autism scale that are functional. And um, I'm trying to think of what some of the other similarities are. Uh, Germanic descent, that, that tends to be a factor in some of these cases. A lot of times uh, the people that go missing are wearing red. And you think that'd be just the opposite, that if you were wearing red, you'd be easy to spot. Now, maybe that's the problem. They're easy to spot for something else. <laughs> spot for <laughs> what's taken them. And uh, I've thought about that. And a lot of times they won't find the person. They'll find their shoes. And if you were whatever, if it was, you know, the someone or something and you were hunting humans for sport, if you took their shoes, they'd at least have a little bit of a chance to, to make a run for it. But you're, you're going to get them anyway because you're not going to get very far barefoot and i've thought about that a lot of these cases they'll find the person's shoes or if they do find a deceased body they won't be wearing any shoes that is oddly disturbing yeah kind of like uh school we read a book called the most dangerous game and that's it's about somebody that is a big game hunter and just uh wanted uh, the ultimate thrill the ultimate challenge you wanted to hunt a human right so maybe there's a club of, of wealthy individuals that they go out there and, and hunt people in the deserts in the national parks look for those red targets <laughs> was it the bill Owasco uh, disappearance that believed that though he was from marietta yeah had flown out there just to go hiking yeah. basically and uh called been in touch with his girlfriend had an extensive itinerary you know mapped out he was planning to i think go to florida or somewhere after he got done in joshua tree and just you know, no, no sign of him. Uh, they established, you know, that his, his pass uh, had never been scanned at either park entrance at Joshua Tree. But they said that that's not necessarily as strange as it sounds. And sometimes if it's uh, backed up going in or out, they'll just wave people through without scanning their pass. But there's there's no real proof that he was ever actually there. Nobody saw him. Nobody noticed him. But uh, it just supposedly he went there it was on his itinerary the uh so he's um call them peak baggers people that like to see how many peaks they can fit in in a in a hiking session mm -hmm. i think my record stands at one <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i was there for like a fourth of july weekend time and it was the heat was oppressive but there were people asking park rangers you know just acting like they're real badasses but uh yeah that'll that yeah the, the environment will kill the you. great equalizer if you especially if you don't have enough water with you if you're ill prepared you get uh problems with the heat in just a short amount of time and that that's pretty much the end of you and the paul miller case that one was uh weird too like he just i don't think they found him right uh i was thinking he was the one that was found but i have to I don't know if I got that fact in time to put it in the book. But he was like, he was, uh, I think he went on, he went out on like a, a hike that was supposed to last for like an hour or something like that. And then just straight yeah, up. He was on the 49 Palms Oasis Trail, um, a three mile round trip hike to a, to a, a Palm Oasis. And it's well-maintained. A lot of people hike it, and he's another one of those just 
no sign of him. You know, they, they scale back to search after five days and look here. Okay. And uh, in late December 2019, the National Park Service and San Bernardino, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Departments reported they were investigating the discovery of human remains in a remote rocky portion of Joshua Tree. And they think that was him. Okay. Yeah. In January, mid January 2020, it was confirmed to be Paul Miller. And uh, so it looked like he had um, almost tried to dig a hole and put himself in it. But that's, I imagine if it's hot out there, that might be one of the ways you would attempt to cool off. So, yeah, like he was under a rock or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was, was under the edge of a rock and uh, partially in a hole that looked like he had made himself. Like he basically dug his own grave, I guess. But uh, that's, that's not unusual. Um, Bill Melder, the other half of my missing person to mystery channel, he was lost in Joshua Tree for five days, and he said that that's what he did. He got up against a rock and tried to kind of burrow into the ground a little bit just to, in the daytime, escape the heat, and at nighttime, escape the cold, because it's as hot as it gets in the daytime, then it's freezing out there at yeah. night, or can be, depending on the season. Right. What, um, it's, you talk about Bill Melder, what, uh, what was his experience out there? Do you see it's, he had like some kind of weird encounter? Oh, yeah, it's, it's in the book, and it, it's it's in the Joshua tree section. Uh, yeah. He encountered some kind of strange beings that uh, to me, it sounds reminiscent of alien grays and uh, they would approach him. And then when he, like he thought at first that it was somebody coming to help him or something like that. But when he would acknowledge him or even look at him, they would kind of skitter away. And um, so he doesn't know, you know, if it was hallucination, if it's something that actually happened or, but uh, yeah, he'd gone out there after his mother passed away, just, kind of get away from everything and uh got lost and um ran out of food and water and everything and um just barely made it out they told him that he was would have been a goner if they hadn't found him when they had and uh when the, the park ranger did find him he said he woke up and said there was a guy standing there and he said people are looking for you buddy and he said i thought i was dreaming that he's because he he'd had all these strange dreams and uh, seeing things that, that weren't there. And again, you know, is that the heat? Is that uh, dehydration? Or is there just you know, strange things out there in the desert at night? That's the thing that was, I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, Steve was like, do people get in these kind of, when they're in the like extreme heat and extreme cold, especially when they're out there in the desert or like, you're just lost and you're dehydrated and all this type of thing. I mean, do you start, I mean, I think it would be pretty easy to go into some kind of altered state of consciousness to where you might see these type of things. And I mean, like I've said before, like, I don't think it necessarily means that like the experience isn't real, but what do you think? What do you think about that? Because it seems like a lot of people report this type of, this type of thing. I'm just, I'm not so sure in some cases if it is, say hallucination or something natural, normal explanation like that, or right. if it is some kind of uh, almost like a time slip or something. I've talked to people that have been missing and even um, thought they were back home or thought they were in a car that somebody mm-hmm. had picked them up, thought they were on the highway. Uh, one guy, even he'd made it home and was uh, his wife was in the kitchen cooking dinner. And then he came to and realized, oh, I'm still in the desert. I'm still lost. But he said it was just so real that he was there. He could, you know, smell everything and could feel the air conditioner and stuff like that. <laughs> I bet that air conditioner felt good. Yeah. Almost like an out-of-body experience or some sort of 
projection or something. You know, I don't know. It's, it's strange. I've never been that lost, so I can't speak to it from a, a real personal perspective. But there are some people that have some strange tales. And it, sometimes even people that aren't at death's door that aren't really dehydrated, just people that get lost um, where they're just walking along and suddenly nothing looks the same. They look behind them. There's no trail there that they mm-hmm. were on. And it's just like something flipped a switch and uh, everything changes and nothing's familiar. Even if you just try to turn around and go directly the way that you came back, it's it's not the same place anymore. That that's more frightening to me, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, that's something that like I mean, definite kind of like altered state of consciousness. And there's one in the Mount Shasta. I think we'll get to this, but uh, in the Mount Shasta section, where it just kind of seems like the experience seems like a dream to me. You know, it has that very robot grandmother. Right, right. Yeah, it just has that. It has that kind of dreamlike quality. Dream, and almost like this dream like kind of logic to it, yeah. But that's it's so fantastical, though. I just I don't know that a child that small would have the imagination to come up with a, a whole extended story like that and continue to tell it without flaw over and over. But yeah, he was he became lost, didn't know where he was, and said uh, first he thought it was his grandma that had come to to pick him up and called her Cappy, Grandma Cappy, and. Um, but then the closer that he got to her, he realized that it wasn't really his grandma Cappy, but a robot that looked like grandma Cappy. And she took him into a cave and he said in the cave, there was uh, like uh, hiking equipment and weapons and ski equipment and things with cobwebs on it. And um, she, I think she fed him some berries or something like that, or tried to, and then tried to get him to defecate on a piece of paper. That was the part that was like bizarre. Yeah. Well, not, not that the whole thing isn't bizarre. Or DNA but, or something going to yeah, clone him yeah. too. But uh, he wouldn't do it. He told her he didn't have to go. And she got angry and said, well, since you're not cooperating, I'm just going to take you back. I'm going to put you on the trail. Wait here. And somebody will find you. And that was where they found him. It was right where, according to him, she left him. It was in an area that had already been searched. And uh, the strange thing about that is... Um, other grandmother the, the real or the real grandma camping she had been camping out there a few months before and had some sort of a weird experience where she was in her tent and she remembered seeing glowing eyes outside the tent and then the next thing she knows she woke up in the morning face down in the dirt outside of her tent and uh, had uh, two puncture wounds in the back of her neck first i thought it was a spider bite but then on closer inspection it looked like a puncture, like somebody had either put something in or taken something out. So makes you wonder, was that when they got the uh, DNA or whatever they needed to, to clone uh, the robot grandma? Okay. I mean, that's not even the weirdest thing on Mount Shasta. I get into some really strange stuff. They talked about uh, St. Germain appearing to, to people on there. And um, there's uh, some of the strangest Bigfoot encounters I've ever read about were on uh, Mount Shasta. So one lady had observed what she claimed to be a, a female Bigfoot giving birth mm-hmm. on a slope in Mount Shasta. And then about a year later, another lady claimed in the same area that she observed a female Bigfoot nursing a baby Bigfoot. So if you think about it, that's probably the same Bigfoot and a baby. Mm-hmm. Has anybody ever reported anything like that before? Not that I'm aware of. Now, I'm yeah. not a, a, a 
huge Bigfoot researcher. I'm somewhat familiar with it, but right. I've never heard anything about a, a mother and a child. Uh, uh, Cisco Murdoch talks about an encounter she had in Alabama with a, what appeared to be a baby Bigfoot, but there was no mother around. It was just sitting on mm -hmm. the side of the road looking sad. So maybe that's why maybe it got lost from its uh, parental units. Yeah, I remember Cisco talking about that. All the, the encounters and stuff that I've read, I don't think I've ever heard anything about like Bigfoot actually giving birth or like actually seeing that, you know, I was like, well, that's kind of a new one. Yeah. You know, and I kind of, I lean towards supernatural Bigfoot myself or whatever, folkloric Bigfoot. Um, but they're, they're not birthed. They just appear holy yeah, form. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but you, yeah, you don't ever hear anything like that. And like, if it's a real animal, then yeah, it would kind of make sense, right? Mm -hmm. But you'd think they probably would do it in a cave somewhere or something like that. But uh, yeah, I never heard of anything like that. Yeah, Mount Shasta is a really strange place. And I, uh, talk about the Mac, the MacArthur Bernie Falls and kind of like the association to like the like people say the like the Fay hang out there and. Yeah, All this type of stuff. Series of, um, I believe it's three falls there. The, of course, the top and the bottom falls are the easiest to get to because you can drive to either one of those. But the middle falls is the one where all the supernatural activity is supposed to occur. And uh, depending on who you talk to, there's an entrance into the the underground city there behind the, the, the middle falls. But uh, yeah, the Fay are supposedly very active there. Uh, all kinds of elementals, uh, land and water sprites and spirits and things, the uh, naiads and dryads and uh, protectors of the forest. And then just not too far from there, there's some uh, areas that are supposedly haunted that uh, somehow tie in with the falls. And I don't remember the exact connection off the top of my head, but it's very near there. And one is uh, a graveyard that's uh, built too close to the highway and uh, mm -hmm. people regularly see the, race uh, walking around the graveyard out by the edge of the road the people there are upset because they built a highway through the edge of the graveyard yeah which you know some of the stuff like in iceland and these areas where they like there's like mounds roads around a rock outcropping because they don't want right. to disturb, disturb the right. gnomes and trolls and um, you know i've heard that story before there's a graveyard like that in east tennessee where uh road goes right by it and erosion got so bad that they did have to relocate some of the graves. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but somebody claimed they uh, drove by and saw a shoe sticking out of the bank. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, they, they, that's a little disconcerting. Yeah. They relocated the graves. And then after that, people start seeing things appear there uh, right in the curve where that, where they had to, to move the graves back. So, I don't know. I'm, I guess they don't appreciate being disturbed from their eternal slumber, but at least they did move them out of the way. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Guy Ballard and the IM movement and uh, the encounter with St. Germain and why people think like the Ascended Masters are underneath uh, Mount Shasta or in Mount Shasta and all the Lemuria stuff that goes along with it. Yeah, the Lemurians were uh, similar to the Atlanteans. They somehow found a way to get from uh, where they were to here um, before, I guess, Lemuria sank like Atlantis did. But um, I've heard stories of, like people from a distance even training a telescope on Mount Shasta 
and seeing people in gold robes and stuff out there walking around. But uh, yeah, Ballard uh, and his wife had gone there. He supposedly was called there. Something uh, called him there from the Midwest. They drove out to Shasta. That's like back in the 30s, 20s or 30s. And um, one day while uh, on a hike, I think he left his wife at the campsite and he encountered a, a young man who identified himself as the Count St. Germain. And uh, he gave him a, a milky liquid to drink, which uh, he told him was uh, the universal uh, elixir or something like that. And uh, gave him some uh, little cakes of some sort to eat. So he, he drank the, the milky substance, ate the cakes, and then suddenly became imbued with all this knowledge. It allowed him to uh, open up and like basically channel all this knowledge directly from St. Germain. And that was what the whole religion was based on. And it, actually flourished one time it had several million converts and uh, the only thing that um, killed it basically was the death of ballard because he claimed to be immortal and then when he passed on his followers kind of figured out they've been hoodwinked that and he had a big uh, lawsuit against him for uh, uh the postal inspectors were suing him for postal fraud so yeah do you know what they were doing what that what that entailed like the mail fraud yeah just exactly just the, the i mean pretty much the stuff that he was teaching in the in the books that he was sending out telling people that you know that this was the way and and everything and that you uh-huh. could uh basically sell the smoke and mirrors the, the stuff that he promised was not true at all and that was how they got him for mail fraud that he claimed that if you do these rituals and all the stuff that he had lined out there. And it's because it was hundreds and hundreds of lessons that he had written out and just basically as an ongoing became a cottage industry as well mm-hmm. as a, a pay religion. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you get something going big enough like that, the, the government will figure out a way to shut you down and look at the, the branch Davidians, you know, that's, <laughs> they don't want anybody to, to break away from the mold or break for the fence and, and get away with that. And I think the, Amarch version of the Rosicrucians really kind of cemented a lot of that Lemurian connection to uh, Mount Shasta. I've actually got their uh, old edition of that that book, Lemuria Lost Continent on the of the Pacific. They have a reading room. The the Rosicrucians do there in uh, Weed, as do the uh, okay. I am. They still have a reading room there. Wow! And you can still buy his books and his recordings and stuff. There are still some uh, diehard believers. Well, Guy Ballard also had a lot of influence on William Dudley Pelly, one of the first, like, he was, of course, you know, straight up fascist, um, the silver shirts. And I hear that the, the IM movement was moving in a kind of a similar direction in the 30s. And also, there was a connection with Adamski, too. Yeah. Because Adamski had, he had some kind of like little... Sh- um, restaurant or something that was at the foot of Mount Shasta and also at Palomar, I think. So maybe I'm getting that confused, but yeah, all your mystical California all kind of ties in there. Uh, Madame Blavatsky's in there with it too. Uh, even uh, L. Ron Hubbard, there's been some connections drawn to him and uh, Jack Parsons and uh, some of the stuff they were doing out in the desert. So everyone got a piece of Mount Shasta. Sounds like. Yeah, there's there's some claim a, a straight line or a dotted line to a lot of different of uh, the uh, cults and then people in the occult, the the, the writers and the pontificators. 
it all fits into their mystical cosmologies. Yep. Yeah, because there's all kinds of stuff inside the mountain. There's uh, passageways. There's a caves of gold. There's supposedly a city inside the mountain. Uh, where there's, I think there's like two suns in the sky or something like that. There's lots of wild tales. And uh, I've got a tape that I bought when I was up there. It's uh, called Lazarus Remembers Lemuria. And it's like this new age music and a guy doing the spoken word stuff about what it was like growing up in Lemuria. <laughs> That's cool. There's <laughs> <laughs> still a cottage industry, you know, people yeah. are willing to, to buy it and listen to it. That's, and, you know, it's just one of those things. If you can suspend, suspend disbelief long enough, you can kind of say, no, this is interesting. But then you realize, you know, this guy's just making this stuff up, you know. And Are there any known cave systems in Mount yeah, there, there are a lot of caves in there that are lava tubes. Uh, Shasta is... According to the USGS, it's a dormant volcano that's still active. Now, I don't know how it can be dormant and still active, but that's how it's classified. But I think the last time it blew was like in the 17 or 1800s, last time there was an eruption. So, yeah, there are caves, lava tubes and things like that, very similar to what you have on Mount St. Helens out here. Of course, it famously blew its top back in, it was 80 or 81, but there's a yeah. uh, uh, most famous set of lava tubes there's the ape caves uh close to uh, ape canyon where the, mm -hmm. the the miners had the encounter with a tribe of what they called ape men later on it's pretty much bigfoot that they're describing i think but they supposedly shot and killed one and there's been uh, some expeditions within the last couple of years up there they think they've located the spot where that cabin was on mount shasta and if they can find the cabin they think they might be able to find Skeletal remains of the one they killed if they did indeed kill one. How far are you from Mount St. Helens? From Mount St. Helens, I I can see it if I climb up on my roof. Really? Probably half hour, 45 minutes. Oh, wow. That's super close. I remember going there when I was a kid because we took a, like a trip out west. And I remember seeing it. That was like 1987. So, I mean, that was only a few years after. Yeah. The yeah, there's still all kinds of devastation and stuff up through the, the visitor center there. I've been to that. Haven't been, well, I've been around the, the foot of Mount Sash. I haven't been too far <laughs> up on the mountain yet. we got plans, though. Um, I was supposed to go last weekend with a, a small film crew. We were going to go up on Shasta and film some stuff, but it got canceled and uh, wanted to do some things up on Mount Rainier, too. There's been a lot of disappearances up there. I'm wanting to go. It basically, the intros and outros for some videos I'm making for the YouTube channel. But uh, yeah. I think I don't remember when I was on with you last, but yeah, my YouTube channel absolutely blew up. Got like uh, 108 or 109,000 subscribers or something. Now, awesome, so. man. That's great. Everyone go check it out right now. Yeah, Missing Persons and Mysteries. It's uh, we. Like the name says, we center on the missing persons and stuff. That's our main focus. But on the mystery side of us, that can be a little bit of everything. It can be cryptids or uh, anything unexplained, really. One of our most popular segments, we have uh, listener stories where people write in experiences that they've had and stuff. And uh, we don't vet any of it. We don't judge. I mean, it's just you send in a story, I'll narrate it and put it on there. It is what it is. Because that's that's not the point to prove or disprove yeah. any of it, but just to give people a platform to um, air their stories and their experiences. That's cool. Real interactive. 
Yeah, that's a weird. That's a weird area. Are you getting into Mount St. Helens and stuff in the in the in the in the third book? Yeah, the, the third book. Um, it'll be coming out December. At least the fourteenth or the seventeenth. It'll be uh, volume three. Will be uh, the Pacific Northwest covers Oregon, Washington State, and Idaho. Well, do you think there's something with all that, like you know, earthquake activity and the seismic and uh, the volcanic activity out there that might make it so so weird? I, I think that can have something to do with it because of just the the electromagnetical properties and things like that, and how that can cause disturbances in a lot of different things, in, including the human mind. You know, I've read stories of people that lived under uh, high attention power wires that would have hallucinations and see ghosts and stuff. And they eventually came to believe it was because of the electricity affecting them. So I think anytime you have that, you know, where those plates shift and you have an earthquake and there's that energy release, I think it can make things weirder or make things stranger at least anyway. And almost a, a ley line type thing. You know, they have the ley lines throughout Europe. You've got, if you look at some of the areas here that are kind of connected like that, say so look on the, the West coast here, you've got Mount St. Helens that goes down to um, crater Lake in that area, which goes right down to Shasta, which continues on down, you know, all the way down the coast. And just, I think there's, some sort of, I don't know if it's ley lines or some sort of uh, path, maybe would be a better word of uh, geomagnetic uh, disturbances that we have. Uh, they have it on the East Coast, too, with all the limestone caverns and things there in the Kentucky, in the area like where Hellier and all that goes on. Uh, just very near there is the home to one of the biggest geomagnetic anomalies in the country. Oh, we've heard yeah. about that. Somerset, Somerset, <laughs> Kentucky. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> we've talked to Nathan, actually, um, Isaac. I don't know if you've heard Penny Royal podcast. But I have. Yeah. He's going to actually be at the, at the conference too. So he's, he's a fascinating individual. Well, that's, that's putting it lightly. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Nathan, something else, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. I mean, like the Eastern United States is, is pretty weird in and of itself. And so you got a lot of, uh, I mean, I remember um, being in Chattanooga. I can remember like there's like we would have like these tiny little earthquakes. You would just hear like a rumble because there's fault lines not too far away. You don't think of it. But did you ever experience any of that in Knoxville? Yeah, when I lived there. in East Tennessee, I've had them shake the bed lots of times and knock pictures off yeah. the wall. And uh, the New Madron Fault is there, not just too much farther west. Uh, Oh yeah, if it's west of it's between Knoxville and Nashville, it's just between Nashville and Memphis, but it's going that direction. Yeah, it's Missouri, but like if it if it goes the way that it did in like I think it was eighteen nineteen, like Memphis would be really damaged, and yeah, I mean Nashville would be damaged too. I don't think quite as bad, but that was a pretty massive earthquake and that's a pretty massive fault line and people don't even don't even think about it yeah well that's like at yosemite there's a lot of activity there that if that ever blows up that could be from some of the stuff i've read an extinction level event i said yosemite i meant yellowstone yeah still had yosemite in my head from talking about that in the book yeah that uh that would be a serious that would be a serious thing (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm looking at some of these 
some pictures of, of lava tubes. I don't think I've ever really looked into it. I've, I've been to Mammoth Cave. I've been in a lot of caves around this area. But there's something about those lava tubes. I could see how one could kind of develop a mythology around them because they're just the str- straight shot tunnels, you know. Oh, that's crazy. Very smooth. They look like they've been carved or something, you know, with a very smooth carving. And uh, I know some of the ones, I don't know if it's the ape uh, lava tubes, the ape uh, cave lava tubes, but some in that area, the Native Americans had uh, a story that if you spent the night in there, you would you would lose your mind, that when you woke up the next day, you would be insane. Yeah, it, uh, it looks pretty scary. I wouldn't want to do that. I, I wouldn't want to spend the night in one just for, just in case. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Yosemite. Never been there. That's one of the places I'd really like to go, but I don't know. Too many people disappear out there, Steve. Also so. where a bad man named Sam is from. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of like the legend, the, one of the legends there you mentioned in the book. You mentioned uh, the fish women. Yeah, kind of a, a mermaid-type legend. It goes back to the Native Americans that uh, they lived out in the water there. They would uh, sing their song, and um, if the braves uh, didn't get away or stuff moss or something in their ears right away, they would fall prey to that and then swim out in the water to be with these beautiful women, and then the women would uh, pull them down under the water and hold them down there till they, they drowned and uh, supposedly harvest their souls that way. Well, it's just um, I I've heard some stories, you know, modern day stories of mermaids and stuff, and seen some impressive footage, which is probably CGI. But it's interesting to think about that that all these legends that's here, even the maritime legends and stuff like that, that the Native Americans had a version of it too. Yeah, and um, same with a lot of the face stuff. Native Americans dealt with all that, like in the Smokies, there they had uh, their version of Bigfoot that they talked about. They had their version of uh, fairies or little people. And um, I think it all kind of goes back to the fae. I've been, we've been studying that theory a lot over on the channel that uh, a lot of these missing people that maybe the fae took them somehow. Because if, if you look at UFOs and UFO, UFO abductions, well, if you look back in the 16, 1700s in the, the Celtic fairy lore, there's instances of that like that where, you know, a little man in a horseless carriage came out of the sky and took somebody. Well, that's a UFO or a, a hairy giant in the forest grabbed some kids while they were picking berries. Well, that's a Bigfoot. So it's, it's, but it's all connected to the Fae. They've got their own, um, Jim and Jade, my co-host and uh, head writer on the channel. She's writing a book uh, missing the Fae theory. And uh, she's delved into all this and she's found all these different types and realms and there's like hundreds of uh, types different types of fae you know normal ones that you've heard of pixies and brownies and gnomes and trolls and all this but a lot that you haven't heard of and then a lot of the elementals fit in with that too then it's funny because people that believe in bigfoot or believe in ufos will snicker at you you know if you bring up the fairies the fae folk but i I think it kind of all flows into the same thing the more i see you more and study about it things it's it's frightening yeah it most definitely does i mean um you can look at if you've ever read any of joshua cutchen's books mm-hmm. i mean that's what he does primarily is looking at the three different um types of experiences and the similarities between them so 
you know ufo abduction contacts uh the 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 fairy the fairy folk and that kind of folklore and then also bigfoot and just how all three of those really kind of mesh with each other you know and there's so many different traditions too um because we we derive the whole concept of the fae from the Celts, from the Celts, uh, you know, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, the, those areas, and then you. But then you've also got you know Scandinavian folklore, these different kind of creatures. That's a whole. That's a whole other different thing. But there's just, there's similarities there too. Yeah. And then the Arabs with the jinn, which is real fascinating. They act pretty much the same as uh, as the fairy folk and, do. And the Native Americans and their stories. Right. And it's just it's universal. I mean, getting into South American places like that, a lot of those tribes have stories of little people that live in the forest and things like that. So it's it's almost the a Cherokee, universal thing. especially. Yeah, the Cherokee have that a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it is a universal thing, and I think people will laugh at it because they'll say, "Well, you know, like the fairies and that kind of popular culture and, image." And we talked about that in some of our videos. It's because it's become so Disneyfied, right? You, right. You're a fairy, you think of Tinkerbell, you know, that flits around and sprinkles glitter on children and and things like that. When it boils right down to it, uh, none of them really. I think the brownies may be the only ones that are sort of helpful the rest of them are, are mean mischievous malevolent yeah. they hate humans well they'll they'll take you um and make you live with them for years and years and years and that's similar to kind of the bigfoot experience too where like you know i mean josh has a book um uh what is it thieves in the night mm -hmm. where he talks about uh the those three different aspects aliens um Fairies, in Bigfoot. particular, with child abduction, child abduction, the changing, yeah, the changeling folklore and all and all that type of stuff. Um, I find the gin stuff really interesting. I had Rosemary Ellen Guiley on back in God, this is like 2013, 2014. and you know we talked about her book about the gin and the the similarities between them and the fey folk and between aliens and um are you i i guess you're familiar with the kind of the origin story of the jinn or the the what's in i guess it's the quran where they talk about how god created man and the angels and he created something in between yeah, which was the uh, yeah, I kind of draw a lot of parallels between yeah. that and the, the Nephilim or the fallen right, angels, right. or uh, ones that are uh, neither angel nor man, and somewhere in the middle ground. So yeah, it's there's a lot of similarities there, and that's and if you start looking into those stories, those go back to you know almost prehistoric times, uh, yeah. back in the thousands BC. You know they had those stories, so. It's not anything new, but I think our ability to to grasp it and to connect the dots is maybe getting a little easier or something. I, right. I keep hearing people say that, that the veil is, is thinning, like even now, and that's why you see it, an up ramp in a lot of things, disappearances and paranormal activity and strange things going on that this is, you know, that we're in the end times or something like that. And that's why that a lot of this stuff is happening and going on now, but it, there does seem to be a marked increase in it to me from what I've observed. And some, the, some parts of it. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the disappearances and such? Yeah, the, the disappearances and just, just strange things in general. Like that uh, family in uh, Mariposa, California, Mariposa County, that uh, they're found dead on the trail. Um, mom, dad, one-year-old baby, and a dog uh, on the trail. They didn't even try to get off the trail. The dad died in a sitting position. Um, there's no trauma of any sort, no wounds, no sign of any foul play. Uh, they're still waiting on the toxicology reports to come back. They have no idea what killed them, but uh, killed uh, three people and a dog, just all, apparently almost immediately. But then by the same token, the, the deputies that found the bodies stayed out there with the bodies until first light, and it didn't affect them. No other uh, animals, insect, or hikers, anything else in the area has been affected by it. That's just such a weird thing that something killed those people and they don't know what. Now, they haven't ruled out maybe like a murder-suicide type thing. Like mm-hmm. uh, the, the wife had been a pharmaceutical technician at one time. Um, there's also a good conspiracy angle. The dad had worked for Google and was very high up and made a lot of money until he recently uh, resigned there and went over to Snapchat but I uh, keep hearing some things about Google whistleblowers that are going to come out with some shady, uh, shady stuff that uh, Google's done with the government. And uh, there's that line of thought that he was going to be going to be some sort of whistleblower. And it was uh, that type of assassination. And they just took out the whole family, maybe poisoned their water or something. So they did pack in water with them. And that's been sent out for testing, but no results back on that yet. How recent was this? Uh, middle of August, like around the seventeenth. Okay, think. so yeah, that's not that's not very long ago at all. And uh, yeah, they've, they've gone for a hike, and, and that's that's near Yosemite. It's not in Yosemite, but it's very near there. Yeah, uh, gone for a hike one. Uh, it was a Sunday morning, and then the maid uh, noticed the next day that they weren't back, and uh, had them declared missing. And then they found the bodies about two o'clock. Tuesday morning where they had perished on the trail with no evidence of anything. They were kind of sort of um, trying to blame it on uh, algae blooms in the area, but I, that's swamp <laughs> gas or a weather balloon or something. <laughs> if you, if you ask me, I mean, we have those algae blooms out here in Portland in the Willamette river and they are deadly to animals and things, but it doesn't, you know, come up on the trail and, and kill people. Mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah that's that's really strange so you're seeing more of an uptick in these kind of like weird disappearances yeah and again it could be you know people getting out more people getting out in the outdoors with all the, the pandemic and everything going on sure right that could be the reasons for it but last year for example uh in, in 2020 when everything was going on uh, the smokies broke records that year it was already the most visited national park and they surpassed 12 million in 2020 with everything that was going on. So and I think Yosemite did uh, I think around eight or 9 million. Mm-hmm. It's the second most visited national park. 
Hmm. I think with the Smokies, you've got just the location where it is in your north, south, and uh, east, west interstates cross right there, just below Knoxville. And plus, it's within about a day's drive of all the major population centers on the east coast there. Yeah. And I think that's why the Smokies are so popular. And it's beautiful down there, especially in the fall. Yeah, and it's such a big park, too. Yeah, it's, uh, the park itself is over uh, a half a million acres. And if you add in, like, all the national forest in that area, the Cherokee National Forest and Nantahala and places like that, you can more than double that uh, acreage. So, yeah, it's a big place to, to go play in the woods. Well, you know, uh, we talked about this a little bit a couple of episodes ago, but, uh, you know, the Travis Walton case, uh, when you really look at it, it really reminds me of like a fairy, like he, like he went into fairyland basically. Yeah. Could be, um, being gone for five days or whatever. And then coming back and what he reported. And, um, if you take that story and transpose it to like the 18th century, I mean, it's, it's a trip to, it's a trip to fairyland. Yeah. And wasn't he one of those that wasn't even sure how long he'd been gone? And it seemed either a lot shorter or a lot longer than he had right, been. Right, right. That, that, kind that of happens a lot. Missing time type of aspect to it. Um, yeah, that's common. It's, and it's usually one extreme or the other. person will have been missing for maybe days or even weeks and think that they've only been gone a day or two. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you'll have people that were only missing for a short time, maybe a few hours. And they claim that they watched the, the sunrise and set several times in that length of time. So, yeah, see, that's weird. That's weird too. And it's like that weird time dil- dilation effect. I don't know what you would call the elongation, I guess would be the other would be the opposite of that. But, um, I don't really know what's, what is, what the mechanism is, is behind that. And you hear people also, they're like, you just, like you said too. I mean, earlier we were talking about people, seeing um their loved ones or whatever like having like a really visceral real experience i mean that in of itself could be that as could be you know some kind of projection because you know i believe that the other is out there and i think that that's what people have been experiencing i mean i think that's a better term to use besides like fey or gin or whatever because those are awfully Culturally yeah, specific. Are, yeah, very specific, whereas yeah. it's just a more generalized because it seems to happen to anybody, regardless of their culture, their religion, their upbringing, their social strata, any of that. There's it's it crosses all socioeconomic and cultural boundaries. Well, what do you think about some of these like um murders that happen in these parks? Um like I'd like to talk about the Yosemite sightseer murders. Um that's one of them. Uh, you think there's any kind of influence on these these people that commit these like really awful crimes? I, I think so. And if you're you're into that sort of thing, I mean, if you're looking for unsuspecting people to murder, what better place than in the national forest? And uh, yeah, I know the FBI's conjecture for years that there is a serial killer or killers that operate uh, up and down the Appalachian Trail. And um, if you knew that trail well enough, if you traveled it often, you know, there's all kinds of little places you can get off, go into a small town. Um, 
maybe dump, dump somebody, abduct somebody and get back on the trail and you're gone. And, you know, as far as I know, they don't put any roadblocks or anything on the Appalachian Trail when they're looking for suspects. Uh, likewise, you could take people from the trail. That would be a little more risky because especially there's uh, people that pretty much stay on that trail almost year round, a lot of through hikers and things. And they have trail names and they know one another. And there's an entity, a human known humans known as trail angels, which are people that live in those little towns where the, the trail passes through and they help people that hike on the trail, give them food or a few bucks, you know, whatever they need, whatever they can. And they would notice things like that. But uh, I, that's one of the theories we looked at, like with the, um, the smiley face killers, mm-hmm. you know, those are usually in urban areas, particularly in the Midwest where they find young college age men that went out for a night of, night of drinking. They disappear found anywhere from a few days to a few weeks later, deceased in a local body of water. And uh, they may have been missing for, say, two, three weeks, but they've only been in the water for a day or two. Where were they the rest of that time? Why is there surveillance footage of them going into a bar, but none of them coming back out or none of them being put in the water? I think you kind of have that same thing in some of these national parks. If you are that type of person, if you are a, a, a Ted Bundy or a whoever, that would be a hunting ground. That would be a place you know, where you could hide. You could watch people. Um, a lot of places, there's no cell reception. There may not be other humans for miles, depending on the, the isolation. I think that would be a, a prime prime place to go hunting humans, I think, if you're of that nature. And if you had the wherewithal, you know, you'd have to be an outdoors type person to be able to, to make it out there. But I, I think there are serial killers that work. I think that's part of the missing. I, I don't think, see it as just any one thing. I see a little bit of each theory. I believe aliens, Bigfoot, portals, the Fae, serial killers. Well, I'm, I was thinking more in the, the, in the lines of just like these, these serial killers are being influenced, like, you know, by some other kind of force. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think you would have to be. I think there's some malevolence or some evil there that just gets into people and cause them to, to do atrocities and things like that. I mean, uh, remember years ago, reading about the Dahmer case that he yeah. talked about entities that would talk to him. And supposedly when they captured him, he was uh, like letting all these uh, unearthly growls and, and guttural sounds and stuff out like things were escaping from him. And uh, I, I, I definitely believe there's a supernatural element to any of that. Uh, you have ones that admit to it. Richard Ramirez, you know, he worshiped Satan oh, yeah. and uh, asked Satan to favor him and to help him find people to kill and to get away with it. But then I guess came time for the devil to have his due and the neighbors recognized him and beat him to a pulp in the street in front of his house. <laughs> yeah. I watched that uh, documentary about, about him. I didn't know all that. Um, and I watched a thing about John Wayne Gacy and uh, Gacy at one point, like he was in full Pogo the Clown makeup, and uh, he was with the the guy was telling the story about like how he made Gacy mad, and apparently Gacy started like just doing this like this guttural growling in like the full clown makeup, which oh, man, you can only imagine how horrifying <laughs> scary to think that, about. that would be. <laughs> you know, I, I used to own a Gacy painting, but it it got to where it weirded me out so bad that I yeah saw yeah. Well, he's prolific with that. He's the got skull clowns. The and then, especially after my daughter was born, you know, she's just a baby and it's kind of hanging, not above her crib, but near her crib. And I thought, you know, that just, that gives me the creeps. So 
I sold it, made good money on it, but I wish I had it now because they're, they're worth a lot more than what I paid for it and what I sold it for. How did you get it? Uh, I'd actually, I'd written to him. I was working on a, I was writing for some true crime magazines at the time. And uh-huh. one of the projects I was working on, I was writing to some of these guys just to see if they'd write back. I wrote uh, Tex Watson. I wrote Charles Manson, uh, John Wayne Gacy was one of the ones I wrote. And that was how I approached him. I asked about his artwork and uh, he gave me the, um, uh, like a, almost like a little catalog listing of a guy in uh, Louisiana that was his art dealer. And because of the son of Sam law, he couldn't sell his paintings himself, but uh, he would give them to this guy and that guy could sell them. And I guess he made sure Gacy had uh, canteen money or whatever, but uh, I got in touch with the guy. And back then I think I paid like a hundred dollars for uh, probably a, uh, say about 11 by 17 uh, skull clown. And uh, I sold it for 300 a few years later. Mm-hmm. And now it's probably worth a few thousand. So, but I was glad to get rid of it. Like I said, just, it gave me the creeps. I'd be sitting there. Uh, I had my computer room set up at the time. I could see into that room. And it was, you know, I was sitting there two or three o'clock in the morning working on something creepy and keep noticing that skull clown grinning at me on the wall. And then you get to thinking about that. <laughs> the guy that painted that, you know, they found 32, 33 bodies, whatever, under his house of people that he uh, killed. Right. And, um, it's one of those things, you know, to quote Nietzsche, when you peer into the abyss, the abyss peers into you. And um, mm-hmm. I found that out when I was writing a lot about these serial killers and uh, true crime people, mass murders and stuff. You you don't want to get too far into their head. I'm not saying it would push you over the edge, but it's it's very dark and very disturbing in there and can give you nightmares when you, you see just how easy sometimes it would be to, you know, to slip over into that. And uh, I think that's, to quote Hunter S. Thompson, the only people that know where the edge truly is are those that have gone over it. So, yeah. <laughs> so just had to take a step back from it and do something different for a while. But I mean, I've said this before, but I feel like Gacy was the beginning of the whole like evil clown, like popular culture evil clown thing. You know, you know, the, the clown itself, the clown figure, mm-hmm. goes back to the. Um, the miracle plays during the children's crusade. So that was, that was the makeup of the devil. Yeah. Those plays that they put on for kids in medieval times. So the, the clown and, and Satan are intertwined have been for eons, but yeah, I think he was the first one that kind of started that. And then you had, you know, the killer clowns from outer space and uh, it's another pop yeah. culture icons yeah. like that with clowns in them. I, I don't, I don't think, Stephen King has ever said this, but like it just seems that that there had to have been some kind of direct connection that had to have been in Stephen King's mind was John Wayne Gacy, you know, Um, because you have a clown that's killing kids, and then Gacy was like I think they caught him in like seventy eight, I think, and then the whole thing that he was also this children's clown, and then like we've talked about before. Steve, like the the Phantom Clown started like around eighty eighty one, but it was in but and it was in Chicago too. I think to begin with, right? Yeah, I believe so. It's somewhere in the Midwest, and then they just started appearing like everywhere all at yeah. once. Uh, Boston Coleman had a lot of about that. Lauren Coleman, right. uh, yeah, you know, talked about the ones in Boston, and a lot of times it was the same mo. There'd be two or three of them in either a white or a black van, and yeah. they would drive near a school or schoolyard. And um, it was just a couple of isolated instances at first. 
And then it was like coast to coast. Some of them, you know, on the same time at the same day. So uh-huh. it wasn't obviously the same people, but it was almost like the cosmic prankster or whatever's out there had, had a coordinated effort. Like, okay, we're going to put clowns everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was also the weird, um, and this went on for years and it, I think it went on uh, kind of like the the pre not close close to nine eleven, but the pre nine eleven period. And I remember the stuff about like the Israeli encyclopedia salesman. Do you remember this, Steve? Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I remember hearing about that. that yeah. Uh, show up trying to sell you stuff but it just didn't seem right they didn't have their yeah. skill down they'd be right ask them questions about it. they didn't have any idea even like the most rudimentary stuff like even how much it cost or how long it would take to accept delivery on a set if you did purchase them and things like that it yeah. just didn't make a lot of sense bizarre i mean it's it's shades of stuff that kill writes about in the mothman prophecies with all these strange characters that would show up in point pleasant or like the surrounding area and they wouldn't know like what a fork is or these kind of weird kind of things that were going on. Like, uh, and then we had you on the show back when this was going on, you know, the 2016 clown, mm-hmm. uh, a, a new, clown new flap of clowns there. Yeah. 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 Clown flap. Oh, flap of clowns. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's like these type of things happen in like times of great social stress, and that's that's why I was kind of surprised. Especially now. Saying, and we talked about this. There's a report where the police had gotten a notification about these clowns. They got into the woods, found an abandoned shack, and inside they found a clown paraphernalia. Do you remember yeah. that? Right, we were right. Talking what 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 like, like Big clown paraphernalia. Big shoes. Big shoes. A nose that honks when you squeeze it. <laughs> clown paraphernalia. <laughs> but, I mean, for some reason, just 2016, and and I was surprised that there weren't any like big kind of like flaps like that in in 2020. Yeah, that, and that tends to be the things like that. They just they stop just as quickly as they start happening. Right. And then you may not ever hear about it again, or at least for a few years. I remember it was all over Facebook. People were uh, printing up uh, clown hunting permits and uh, had pictures of clowns tied to their fender, their uh, off-road vehicle, things <laughs> like that. You know, so I was surprised that there wasn't more people killed. Uh, I heard one story about a guy that uh, an honest to goodness clown that was on his way to perform at a kid's birthday party and mm-hmm. stopped for red light, and, and people dragged him out and beat him up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, yeah you were saying it kind of reach a critical mass but then just goes away like it the whole idea that the trickster negates itself you know right mm-hmm. when it's hitting this critical mass and people are looking into it and maybe you'll capture one or something then it just it's gone and and i love those little instances like that where it's just some kind of weird little isolated occurrence or instance that it goes widespread and then just goes away so did you get um did you get a, a response back from Charles Manson? I did, and it was just as bizarre as you would expect. Uh, at that time, not only was I writing about true crime, but I was also working in uh, IT and networking, and I was explaining what I did with the computers. And um, he picked that up and ran with it, and it was just like, so yeah, computer, you know, everything's off or on, right or wrong, binary, that's where I'm at. I'm a zero with a slash through it. You know, it's just, it was pure classic yeah. Charlie. Yeah. 
He's definitely a jive turkey. <laughs> Charlie's rap. He can just go. Yeah, he just but it just and I, I actually loaned that to somebody that and they used it in a criminology class and then I never got it back. I think the teacher kept it or something. But again, I'd like to have it now, but in a way I'm I'm okay to be rid of it too. Because again, you're thinking about that, you know, the person that, that touched this person that wrote this is you know, some consider it one of the most evil people ever to exist. I personally, I think Manson got a raw deal. He was uh, convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. He didn't kill anybody except maybe Gary Hinman. He might have helped with that one. And then supposedly he tied the LaBiancas up, but he wasn't the one that slaughtered him. But uh, I think the thing with Manson is just he was the, the boogeyman. You know, it wasn't that long after we'd had Hitler and had uh, Vietnam and stuff still going on. And that was just, you know, it was a good scapegoat. You know, Nixon declared him guilty in the press, but he never got a fair trial. Yeah, I think he's definitely a, was a threat to society. But um, the, you know, the way they were able to justify keeping him locked up for his whole life was it didn't have a lot of legal precedence. It was all based on mind control, you know. So it was really. Really strange. You know, it's probably better that he wasn't on the streets, uh, especially because, you know, he was organizing his ecological terrorism stuff. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it's it was pretty, pretty weird legalistic framework they did that with. Yeah, he, they had the you're talking about the ecological terrorism there. They still have that uh, little groups called ATWA, A-T-W-A. Air trees, is, water animals. Yeah. And uh other meaning can also be all the way alive, but that still yeah. exists. It's still functional. And they do dastardly things like go out and spike trees that are about to be cut down and things like that to, uh, you know, mess those saw blades up. And uh, Sandra Good, she's out of prison. I think she's, I want to say she's in Vermont or New Jersey or somewhere like that. She's out and about and still spreading her uh, ill will. Yeah. Did they, t- they try to kill Ford, right? Yeah, that was uh, Squeaky Fromm. Right. Pulled the yeah. gun on Ford. And, you know, that was a weird thing, too. The the other lady that tried to assassinate Ford, um, can't remember her name, Sarah something. There was no connection with any of that stuff, except she and Manson went to, like, the same elementary school together or something when they were kids. They were neighbors and knew one. Really? So there's Sarah you know, Jane Moore, I think was her name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she, her, she'd been a playmate of Manson's when she was just a tiny thing. Weird. Well, and the thing with him, you know, well, I totally understand wanting to get rid of something that he touched or created is, you know, he was really into uh, creating like little little bugs out of yarn and things. And it was magical to him. He was trying to accomplish things out in the world with his, you know, little creation. Yeah, he'd save uh, the elastic out of his socks and he would make spiders and uh, scorpions and sometimes little people. And uh, I read an interview about those one time, and he said, no, those are my little my little creations. I send them out in the world to do my work. You know, yeah. it's just creepy because you can see this. Little so you got this piece of paper, you know. Person that, in the mail, and it's get something runs around at night and does Charles Manson's bidding. But, <laughs> but you know, having this little piece of paper that he actually wrote on, you know, it's I feel weird about it too. But uh, the Gacy painting gave off a more or strange aura, but yeah, that just, just the idea to have something that Manson had had, you know, and like had his hands on and things. It was, what do you think of, uh, Manson's music? Do you, you ever listen to any of that? 
Yeah, he, he actually sent me some tapes that uh, had been smuggled out of prison. Of course, there was one album that was produced, a Lie, yeah. Love and Terror Cult, but there was other um, tapes that he recorded in prison that he got smuggled out to his fans and followers. Um, but uh, there, there was some actually some pretty good music on some of them. It was a lot of just Charlie, you know, just he, he could pick fairly well. And there's just a lot of scat singing and stuff, you know, just rhyming words and stuff that didn't make any sense. Although I have heard that a lot of that was stuff that did make sense to his followers. You had to know what to listen for. What do you think about, um, you know, the, the theory that he targeted Sharon Tate's house because it had been Terry Melcher's house and he thought Terry Melcher still lived there. And he, yeah, he that was his thing. He wanted to be a, a, a rock star, a rock singer. He idolized right. the Beatles right? and then had the Dennis Wilson of the beach boys yep. was going to help him at one time until he kind of weirded them out too much. And they actually recorded one of his songs. What was it like? Never cease to love or something like that. Uh, yeah. Was, Which uh, was never, cease, to cease to exist was the yeah. name of it. They retitled it. Never learn not to love. And, um, yeah, that, of course, that upset him that they changed his music, you know, changed his words. But, yeah, Doris Day's son, Terry Melcher, was a record producer, and he had been supposed to uh, help Charlie get a record deal. And um, I've heard that he, he did know that Melcher had moved, and but he didn't really know who lived there, but it was just somebody Hollywood, and that's who he was striking out at. But then, likewise, I have heard that he thought Melcher still lived there, and that's why he sent uh, Tex and the girls up there. Well, you know the weird uh, nexus between uh, Charles Manson and the Dakota building and all that? Uh, Dakota where John Lennon was murdered? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've heard of that. What what have you got? So, I mean, I think you've heard of this, right, Sergio? I don't know. So, the, um, the Dakota building was where Rosemary's Baby was filmed, which was directed by Roman Polanski. And Sharon Tate was Polanski's wife. She was carrying his child. And, of course, I guess according to the official story, Helter Skelter was based off the White Album. And John Lennon was assassinated at the Dakota building. All kind of ties together there. That's a neat little package. I mean, I knew all those things, but I never thought to put them together in one context. Yeah, it's it's a weird synchronistic kind of thing um adam go rightly i think was actually pointed that out um in one of his books about it uh, well have you ever heard the theory that stephen king was actually the one that associated, assassinated yeah. john lennon yeah i've heard that yeah <laughs> that he was a lookalike for hinkley or they were doubles lookalikes of yeah, for, for chapman what was really weird chapman. um I mean, there's hinkley there's, that's uh reagan yeah reagan. but of course he was influenced by chapman uh, because they were, you know, Chapman was caught after he he shot Lennon. He was um, reading Catcher in the Rye, and then Hinckley also had Catcher in the Rye with him when he shot Reagan. But there's a movie about uh, Mark David Chapman in the lead up to him shooting John Lennon. Jared Leto plays Mark David Chapman, and. The guy that plays Lennon in the movie, which is only briefly in the movie, that actor's name is Mark Chapman. Like, what? <laughs> Cosmic prankster. Yeah, there's some weird, yeah, there's some weird stuff. And, and, um, 
You know, he was, uh, Mark David Chapman was in, uh, he went to school at Covenant College, which is right up there at Lookout Mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people have told me that, like, they actually see his name, you know, scrawled up there in one of the one of the chapels, like a little student area where the, all the students would write their names. His name was actually written on there. Huh. And there's the weird mind control stuff. Yeah, that the, the, the catcher in the rye. I think there's some sort of triggers or something in that because that's not the only two cases where that's been yeah. involved somehow. And I haven't read it. I read it when I was in high school. And a couple of times since, and I just, I, I don't think it's even that good of a work, but there was, a, it did something to those two guys, especially it triggered something in them or turned something on a, some kind of a switch. Yeah. And I was talking about this the other night. Remember uh, the, the DC beltway snipers? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, remember the Charlie Moose, the guy who was the, I think he was a detective or something in Charlie. The whole thing sounds like it's made up. But um, remember when he went on and read that statement? There's a really oddly worded thing that says, you know, we wanted to read this today for you. We've heard that it's something you would like to hear. And then it's like the duck is in the noose or something like that. I repeat, the duck is in the noose. Just it made absolutely no sense whatsoever. And then the next day they found him asleep in their car in uh, mm-hmm. the parking lot or somewhere at a gas station. Or mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that part. Yeah. But I, I still wonder what all that was about. That to me, that sounds like some sort of uh, MK Ultra, some sort of mind control, something, and that was the trigger to turn them off. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff like that. Um, you know, Fenton. There's a guy, uh, Fenton Breslin, and he wrote a book uh, called "Who Killed John Lennon," and it's all kind of about. This is back in the like 1980s. It's like I actually have it. It's like out of print now, but. Um, you know, he some compelling kind of circumstantial stuff about Mark David Chapman and how he was, um, you know, basically like he'd gone to like Lebanon or something, and so he was in like a war zone and he had been trained and all this type of stuff. And I mean, you know, Lennon, uh, himself, and the reason he went into hiding in the mid 70s was because of all the kind of just. You know, the Nixon administration had just given him all kinds of problems with his immigration status and all that. And so this author's idea was that, like, you know, 1980, you had Reagan coming in and uh, he was going to be seen as a threat. I mean, who knows? You yeah. know, I personally think Chapman even was with just... Even the Beatles, if you look into the Tavistock Institute and some of those Yeah, I've heard that, that stuff. That right? They were an experiment in mind controlling and... Yeah, yeah. Uh, crowd control is in making the crowd go crazy yeah it gets it gets interesting um yeah the, i don't know there is something weird about the catcher in the rye stuff though yeah and then that kind of leads into did you ever read um, a book man uh, named uh, dave mcgowan oh yeah uh, all the program to kill on. yeah program to kill yeah and then he had the stuff up in laurel canyon yeah there too, that one too. and uh he passed away i heard that was an assassination that they wanted rid of him and so they gave him cancer but uh, anyway, that that's a real eye opener. Some of the stuff he found in all that Laurel Canyon, where basically all the, the the California rock music of that time, it all came from the East Coast. Almost every single person was a military brat um, from a family member, one or more that worked in the military industrial complex. And um, like you know, uh, 
Jim Morrison's dad was a yeah. admiral aboard the ship yep. that basically caused the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Right, right. Yeah. And yet, you know, Jim never came out as anti-war or ever said anything about his dad or anything like that. Uh, showed up with a couple of notebooks. That was basically the, the first several albums of the Doors material. He had never sang before and never performed or anything. And just, I don't know, just there's a lot of weird circumstances like that. All those guys, Zappa, uh, his uh, family was from, uh, I think, Arlington or somewhere in Virginia. That's where he grew up around the, might not have been Arlington, but somewhere around the, an arsenal. He'd grown up. Um, the John Phillips and the Mamas and the Papas, he was from a, a military family back east. Uh, David Crosby, the, the David Van Cortland Crosby, the Van Cortland family. They're a big deal back east. Um, if you look into the Son of Sam killings in uh, Van Cortland Park and all that, that was his family so far back. That was their land was involved in that where the, the Satanists met in the Son of Sam stuff. So there's a lot of weird, weird, weird connections once you start looking at stuff. And, did you watch the um, Sons of Sam? Uh, yeah, I did. Netflix. Yeah. yeah, that was that was interesting. Some fascinating stuff. I had a weird synchronicity uh, shortly after I read that uh, that book about the Laurel Canyon scene. I went to the Tennessee, uh, the little book fair they have in Nashville, and um, there was an editor who had a display, and it was actually uh, McCowan's daughter. He had since passed, but there was a copy of that uh, of that book. What is it called? Weird Scenes in the Canyon, I think. Yeah, so. yeah I think so. And uh, I was just like, you know, I looked at her card and looked at that and was like, she's like, yeah, that's my dad. And um, I was going to get a physical copy of Program to Kill off of her, but she didn't have them. She had them like in her car or something. But, but that was kind of weird right after I had read that book, but. But yeah, he was a, he was a pretty interesting researcher. I really re- wish he was around now. Yeah, yeah, he, he tied some stuff together neatly. And who knows how much of it is really just <laughs> circumstantial or not? But he was a he he was one of the the top uh, conspiracy researchers. I would say, you know. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of times those guys end up strangely dead. Um, I don't know if we've talked about him or not before, Adam. But there was a guy I knew named Ron Bonds who read Illuminate Press in um, Avondale Estates, Georgia. And yeah, uh, Alan, Alan Greenfield uh, knew him. Yeah. yeah. He uh, reprinted uh, Keel's Mothman Prophecies. That was the one that got it noticed and got it made into a movie. Um, he and I were friends from back in the pre-internet days. Really? Um, through uh, Fact Sheet 5, which was like a small mm-hmm. press magazine. And I'd met him through there. He had a BBS called Illuminate BBS. And I'd get on the BBS and chat with him and um, ended up going down to visit him several times. And that was how I met Keel was with him. He called me one I think it was a Friday afternoon and was like, Steve, what are you doing this weekend? Like, no plans. He said, how'd you like to meet uh, John Keel? <laughs> like where and when just tell me yeah, that's cool. I, I drove down to Atlanta and uh, were you in Knoxville then? Yeah, I was yeah. Oak Ridge actually, but uh, yeah, I drove down, spent the night uh, and then Sunday, uh, drove over to his house and met John Keel and we went out to dinner at a Mexican restaurant. Mm-hmm. Be careful of those Mexican restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the same one that later on bonds and his wife went there and, um, he got some kind of weird food poisoning and died. But the weird thing about that, nobody else today at the same restaurant even got sick. 
and it was some really weird bacteria that he had. And there was theory that he was exposing too much because he reprinted a lot of other stuff. Uh, Carrie Thornley, I can't yeah. remember the name of his book, but he was uh, Oswald's uh, pal during boot camp. And mm-hmm. so uh, Ron was getting into some some tricky areas and stuff there. But uh, yeah, they, somebody took him out with a, a bad burrito. <laughs> so, so did you know Jim Keith? Did you? Ever yeah, know I know. Him? I know of him. I know who he yeah. is. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then he he had the the injury at Burning Man that mm-hmm. caused, caused his. Uh, and then who was the other guy? You saw the Principia Discordia. Who wrote that? Um, well, you had Greg Hill and Carrie Thornley were the guys who wrote that. Yeah, and Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was involved with that little circle of groups. And Ron was was doing some amazing stuff. And I said just the fact that he brought Keel back to the fore was trying to. And uh, somewhere I still got a, a copy of his first release of uh, Mothman Prophecies. But uh, was, to have dinner with Keel that was that was a highlight because I'd oh, found Keel's books, you know, from like the fifties and sixties stuff when I was a kid, and had read those. So I was, you know, admire huge. Uh, follower of him mm-hmm. at a time you know when he'd kind of he just kind of faded out and then came back to the four again um like um kolchak the night stalker that was based on keel yeah oh that's yeah i didn't know that actually but that makes sense yeah but uh he was character he was kind of quiet kind of reserved and just really seemed to be kind of embarrassed by everything but still I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything of having dinner with him and Ron Bonds. Yeah. It's quite the bucket list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we lost Tim Beckley this year too. You know, we lost him. Steve, this has been awesome. We, we got off subject, but whatever it's, you know, it's, 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 it's does not matter. We stayed in weird California for a little bit yeah. though, with the Manson <laughs> stuff. So. Yeah. We, we kind of, it's, it's all connected, especially the California stuff. It keeps blurring out my book there. Keep holding it up. I don't know if you guys can. There's no face on it, so okay. There yep. we go, sort of. Anyway. So you're going to be presenting at, at Strange Realities. You're going to be doing uh, You're going to be doing one of the remote presentations. Uh, so what uh, What are you going to be uh, presenting on? Uh, I'll, I'll probably talk about the, the disappearances in the national parks and stuff. That's what I'm most well-known for and what I'm most well-versed in. Uh, although I could, you know, go any direction with it if there's something you'd rather me talk about. Oh, I mean, we, well, I'm letting everybody choose their own presentations. Absolutely. So. I'll just talk about the research I've been doing, the books that I've been writing, and that'll be not too long prior to my the third book in this series coming out. So. Okay. When is that going to going to pop? It's either pop December up. 14th or 17th. I'm in the process of writing it now. And uh, I hope to have it to my publisher by the November, first of November, and then that'll it'll see a December release date. But uh, I got a message the other day that the pre-sale on it is just through the roof. The pre-sale, the third volume at this point has done more than the pre-sale for the second volume had when it was in pre-sale. I don't know. I don't understand all that. But anyway, according to him, it's a good thing. <laughs> And where can uh, where can people get the book and also uh, your YouTube channel? Uh, the books are available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, and wherever fine books are sold. My publisher likes to say that. 
you can get it's in books and print. It has a real ISBN and everything on it there. Uh, you can order it. You can ask them to the library to get it, get a copy of it for you. Um, actually had a fan the other day send me a picture. They found it on the shelf of the first volume of that. They've this great Smoky Mountain ones. They found it on the shelf in a Target store in Florida. So, oh, nice. That's when hey. you know you've arrived. It's when your book's available in the discount stores. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there you go. Congratulations. To yeah. It's like I said, uh, Amazon, wherever fine books are sold. YouTube channel, Missing Persons and Mysteries on YouTube. We uh, just passed about a month or so ago, 100,000 subscribers. And we're getting ready to, I think, hit like 110,000. So a lot going on over there. We've got a lot of stuff planned and constantly doing stuff. We've, excuse me, uh, done almost uh, one video a day this week. Uh, updated a lot of cases. Like I said, we talked about the family in Mariposa County that died on the trail. Uh, there was murder in Moab, Utah of a, a newlywed couple. And just, you know, a little bit of this, that, the other listener stories. Um, got a documentary that we wrote on the smiley face killer theory. I just narrated that that's coming out probably in another week or so. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, a lot of good stuff going on over there. Excellent. Cool. And Everyone go check that out and subscribe. And you'll be making a move back to Tennessee possibly here. In, yeah. I'm looking to move future. back sometime around the, the first of the year, hopefully. Nice. Got one more little thing I want to do out here. I want to, uh, we were talking about Joshua Tree. I want to do a little trip to Joshua Tree. I'm going to take some of my fans out there with me. And uh, we didn't get to touch on uh, Graham Parsons there, but I'm going to go do another seance and roommate at the Joshua Tree Inn and see if we can get a hold of Graham. Oh, we're going to yeah, we're going to touch on that in the Patreon if you don't if that's cool with you, Steve. So. All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and close out the show, guys. Uh, if you want to see Steve's presentation, um, we it will be the Strange Realities Conference, October fifteenth through the seventeenth, and Steve actually is going to be presenting on the seventeenth. Um, I think we said, I think six p.m. Central, I believe, is what it what it is uh, for the uh, the schedule there. So everybody, you can get tickets at strangerealitiesconference.com. Uh, seats or seating is limited as far as the in-person events. Uh, that is $70, but it is only $30 to see 21 speakers, um, over the course of that weekend. And plus you can go back and watch the presentations if you miss any. So that's a, that's a really good deal, guys. Uh, we're going to be pushing hard the $30 online tickets. So, um, join us there. Join us either uh, live in Nashville or online. Um, on the uh, on the uh, interwebs, and uh, Sergio can tell you where you can find our Patreon if you want to help us out there. If you want to check out uh, this continuing conversation with Steve Stockton, you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal uh, for five dollars every month. You can join our own mail order secret society the International Association of Conspiranormalists and get one of these episodes every week. For $10 a month, you get to hang out with us and our mystic crew and uh, check out exclusive presentations and some warm-ups. Two Strange Realities presentations, actually, uh, coming up soon. That's at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Absolutely, guys. Uh, Yes, remember, Strange Realities Conference, October 15th to the 17th. You can see some really great speakers 
and come join us for a lot of fun. All right, guys, we're going to close this section out. Next week, we're going to have Peter Robbins on, and uh, I think Chris Corey is going to join us again for that one. So join us next time on Conspiranormal. inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.